Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hello everybody, and welcome back to the Tornarix podcast. I'm your host James and I'm joined by my good friend Timmy Long. Hi everyone. Rowan is on the deck. Say hi Rowan. Hi Rowan. And this week's guest is Kevin Sweeney. Dr. Kevin Sweeney, because you're an academic, you're a criminologist, Thanks, in U- yep. criminologist in UCC, but ex-Garda, ex-military, and you had a, an interesting career, an interesting route into academia, so you've got you've got good perspectives on the issues that we touch on here. So thanks for taking the time to come down and talk to us. Thank you. Before we get into it, want to tell us a little bit, for the people that don't know you, who you are and where you're from? I was saying to Timmy, from Killarney originally. Joined the army in 1984, joined the guards in 1990, left the guards in 2017, and I'm with UCC since 2018. You were in the guards for six years, or the, the, the army, army for, for six, six years. years. Yeah, yeah. Did, were we always drawn to the army? Had your oh, family yeah. members? Or? No, 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 never have family members, but like that, growing up as a kid, that's all I ever wanted to do. So I was into hiking and mountaineering and sailing and canoeing and everything and it was the thing to do but coming to join it it was like it was like um getting admission into harvard university like it was mm-hmm. like they weren't recruiting i was just i just literally like everything in my life look just played an yeah. incredible role like and how did you end up becoming a guard and then like why did you leave did something happen or? no no i love the army but the, the, how I ended up being a guard was, I was kind of interested in the guards, but I preferred the army. It was more exciting, more fun. But my father, my sister wanted to join the guards and uh, in an ominous sign, my father said, she's a bit nervous about doing the test on her own. Would you go and sit with her, you know, and do the test as well? So I did. She didn't pass the test. I did. And uh, kind of in the army after six years, it's not a place for a married man. Like it's great being single, but I could see that, you know, time away from the family. Well, they own you. They own you, body and soul. Like, mm. and no such thing as overtime. So, like, if the army says "feck off" to Lebanon, you know, <laughs> that's where you're going. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. and if they say you can come home now, that's great. If they say you have to stay there, that's what you do. They literally own you. So, I kind of said, yeah, you know. I could see advantages to the guards were better paid. There was a better pension arrangement. And I kind of said, you know, I've done all I can do. I, I tried everything. I'd done loads of courses in the army. I loved it. But you kind of get to the stage where you kind of say, okay, I got the t-shirt. I've worn the t-shirt. Mm. How many times do I, I need to go back and, mm. you know, so. 
probably, you know, so you kind of, by accident, so you became, a, or by chance, as fate. But again, it, it was just fate. It was just the opportunity came up. Again, they hadn't been recruiting either. And they literally were just opened up just when I was kind of, a year previously, I would have said, no, nah, I'm delighted. I'm really happy. But I was kind of, just kind of at a phase where I was thinking, is this the right thing for me? You know, long term, what do I want to do? And next thing, this opportunity. And that kind of has been my career mm. is, you know, you're kind of in a, place where you're thinking is this the right thing then you see an opportunity and i almost always have taken an opportunity yeah you know what was the main reason you joined like first the army and first then the guards was it to to be somebody to do good by your country not at all no, no for just, fun well which is for fun <sighs> like you mean i joined you, crime for fun <laughs> but like the army yeah. was a place where you could you could train six hours a day eight mm. hours a day if you wanted to like, you mean, whatever sport you were into, and like, you mean, as yeah. I say, I was into the hiking, and the army mm. literally said, you know, off you go there, let's start a hiking club, and we go all over the country mm. doing hikes. Like, So you could train, do, and like, you mean, it was just adventure, it was whatever, mm. the maddest idea you could come up with, there was someone in the army saying, yeah, let's do that. Mm. Did yeah. you ever consider going further in your army career in terms of a ranger or something like that? Well, I tried the rangers, I tried Did the you? ranger a couple of times, first time I blew out my... Ackley's tendon about two days from the finish. Second time I said, I'll go again. And I blew out my knee about a week from the finish. And then I said, okay, go the third time. And mm. next the guards came up and I says, you know, <laughs> I was done off with the Rangers now. <laughs> time to move on, you know? Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, again, I loved that. And I would have, that's where I would have ended up like. Uh, I, that's why I asked you, because I, that's what I see in front of me. Yeah. I see a physically fit man who potentially could have been an army ranger oh, if yeah. he stayed there. You know? Well, like in the Rangers, like the Rangers were even a higher level of fun, like, and it was, I mean, on the courses, they'd say, you know, we're going to upsell and we're going to do this. And I love that kind of stuff. Don't worry about the gear. This is, you know, we'll, we'll get more gear. We'll do that. Mm. That's the kind of stuff. Absolutely. Army mm. is brilliant. But even there were guys in the Ranger ring and I knew one guy from Killarney and think about when you do it, and it's the same with academia, is you have a goal in front of you, you mm. achieve it. But if you're ambitious, you don't just kind of say, okay, I'm done now. Yeah. There's always another goal ahead. So the guys, as I said, a guy from Killarney, he, he was in the Rangers ahead of me. And um, then he says, okay, I need to try. So after Foreign Legion, he went like, mm. and that's the thing is that you, if you have that, that drive, you kind of, you just keep on going. There was a fella on Joe Duffy the other day. He's a ex-Foreign Legion, ex-Irish military. He's gone over to the Ukraine. Yeah. You know that, and, and it's a, it's a bit of a drug. It, it is an adrenaline rush, like, and mm. and that's that's part of that has been part of my problem as well. Like, is that you just enjoy the excitement, you love that rush. At some point, you have to kind of you have to change because if, if mm. you responsibility know, changes, responsibilities yeah. change, and you should change. I like, mm. mean, you can you can be like that, you know, and and get the fun out of it, but you can't expect that everything in your life is going to accommodate you mm. around it, you know, and how, everyone how, else. How different was it coming from the military into the, the police in terms of like the, the, the workload, the type of staff that were in more organizations? Yeah, completely different. I mean, the army is very much, obviously it's regimented. Yeah. You don't do a thing until you're told to do it. And you don't operate on your own generally. There's there's a command structure, whereas the guards is very much about being an independent thinker. And and in some respects, do you know, I I after joining the guards first, I missed the army because there was there was wasn't that comradeship. Mm -hmm. Um then of course the guards want you to to, to be very um 
careful with your paperwork, all that. Yeah. That's a huge administration is a mm. huge part of being yeah. a policeman. Like. Mm. And it's all that paperwork. So everything you do has to be written up. Everyone, you have to write a report on nearly everything. So that, they were big changes for me. But they, but then, of course, then on the other hand, when we were talking earlier, there's a kind of expectation then that you look after fellows in the guards. But that comes later. It's not from training. It's only when you go out that you realize that the training you got was pretty poor. And that was the big difference I found between the guards and the army. The army, their training was functional. They mm. knew what they wanted you to do and they trained you to do that. Mm. And they trained you to the point where it's automatic. A repetition. Yeah, yeah, it was. You just did it over. But it, it caught to the point where, you know, you could, you didn't have to think about it. And that's, that's if you're trained well, that's, you automatically respond. There's no thinking. Whereas the guards, you came out and, it's ad hoc, really. It 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 it, it was it was well. The problem with it was the training. And certainly, when I came through it, wasn't functional. Mm. They had an idea in Templemore that they thought what the job was like, or and some they had some ideas that some of the jobs you would have to do, but the reality was very different. Mm. And so then, when you get out, you have to learn new. The only people to teach you are those who are already serving. So pretty quickly you realize if you don't give them, you know, mm. you listen to them, you're going to fall flat in your face. Mm. So you then have to kind of become part, conform to, to the group. Not everyone. And the, the, here's the big thing about guards and, and every other service. Like I mean, there's good, bad and ugly. Yeah. There's some guards who were just mad for work. They were very good at it. They were professional they were great. And then there was other guards who spent their time, you know, every chance they got down the pub, like you know, working or not working. Mm. Uh, from my perspective, when you're talking there, it sounds like um, the guard that would probably have a tougher job or it's, it's uh, you know, like when you're a guard and you're in the community, there's so many variables, like any kind of a situation could happen. Whereas when you're in the military, you're yeah. kind of trained to do this. Yeah. But I think the guys have way more things that could happen. That, that's why when you see the likes of military, you know, they're talking about sending in military units for civil um, disobedience kind of things. You can't use the military for that because they kind of have a zero to 60 response. It's either nothing's happening or it's kill everybody. The police have to be able to to do a lot more in between, mm. and you you're not yeah. well trained for Makes that. Sense. You know, so when they sent in the army into Northern Ireland, it was never going to work, was it? No, like you send in, like you mean they send in the parachute regiment, probably one trained of the, kill. the best trained, but trained for a very specific purpose, and that's never gone in well because, like you mean, they're going to go into a, a, with civilians. I mean, they had no training for that. Like. Do you know, guards in general, it, it was always my understanding that they were the pillars of society growing mm. up, you know, and, yeah. and the same with prison officers and teachers and, and just people in authority, civil servants and all these different people. But it wasn't until I realised when I got sober um, from alcohol and drugs and all this mad stuff and I started to understand stuff, I started to educate myself. I started to, I, I took him off the pedestal and, and looked at him as just normal, normal human beings like me and you with the same problems as me and James and you, you know, addictions, you know, across the board, mm. you know, um, 
And I often wonder to myself, why aren't guards, do they be, are they, is there a psych, psych, psych evaluation before they even enter into being yes, a guard? Yes, like, I mean, that's, that's actually an incredibly important question. And I've actually, I, I wrote a paper there last year trying to get my head around that because mm. we say in the US you have a lot of mm. Black Lives Matter and you have a lot of police shooting unarmed black men. That's, there's no real difference in police shooting um, people with guns. That's kind of, there's no race definition there. But when you look at, I think it's about three and a half times the numbers of unarmed black men are shot by police mm. than, than white men. So you're kind of saying, I can mean, okay, racism is the obvious answer. But I started, and like that, I'm looking back at my own past and kind of looking, there's there's a there's a, a, a test you do before you go in and kind of it's one of these sight tests to see if you're suitable, but it doesn't look, it's more for your aptitude, mm-hmm. an aptitude test than your sight. And without a shadow of a doubt, there's a couple of fellas that I serve with, I kind of wonder, okay, we'll stay well away from them. Uh-huh. But by and large, it wasn't, that wasn't the problem. But where the problem lies is that over the course of your service, is you're encountering trauma and you're encountering stress. And mm-hmm. stress comes from the traumatic incidents you deal with yourself. Like, I mean, you deal with you know, bodies that haven't been discovered. Like when I mm-hmm. the first body I found, the guy had been in his apartment flat for uh, about four months of the summer. No one knew where he was, broke in. So the guy literally had melted onto his mattress. Um, so you deal with traffic accidents. Like the first traffic accident I had was a, a couple, she was driving. None of them had seatbelts on. He, the passengers, the passenger, he shot out through the windscreen. She shot out but hit a tree. So like, I mean, you're dealing with those kind of direct traumas. Mm. Then you're dealing with individuals, like when you're investigating a crime mm. and you're talking to somebody who's been sexually assaulted or you're talking to somebody who's been knifed or you're talking, you're like, I mean, it, the horrendous stuff that goes on in people's lives. Mm. You're there trying to go through it in, in forensic detail. There are two forms of stress. So you've indirect trauma and stress mm. and you, you've direct trauma and stress that you experience yourself. But then you also have the stress from working in an organization that doesn't take a whole lot of notice of stress and trauma. Like, I mean, you deal with a fatal accident. Mm-hmm. You're expected to be in work the next day, not just be in work, but now you have to go and talk to the relatives. You have to talk to the truck driver, take statements from them, talk to everybody involved. And like, I mean, some of those are horrific traffic accidents. Mm-hmm. And is there any supervision then for guards after Incidents no, like this. No, nothing. there's no debriefing. There's no psych evaluations. There's no, you know, let's talk about this. You literally go on from day to day. And all that stress and trauma accumulates. And then Those, the yeah. third source of stress is working in communities that don't want you. Mm. So it's not like, you know, and I know fire brigade and sometimes ambulance encounter hostility. But like, I mean, there's police you go into not every but a lot of communities go into you're not wanted there mm, yeah. and a lot of houses you know even you, you go into a domestic abuse situation and, you know a call comes in they're the most dangerous calls police get because mm. you're entering someone's house and usually the man he doesn't want you there and in the u.s it's more than likely if the you get shot the they, there's weapons in the house like so they are very dangerous situations so you have all these different sources of stress and trauma. Mm. And over time, how do you deal with it? 
Yeah. You have to keep going on working. So a lot of guys resort to alcohol. Mm. Do you know, in my, uh, I work in drug and alcohol service, I was telling you. So on my team, my project workers, because we deal with, we don't like, we're not the first responders to accidents and, and crimes like you are, or your colleagues are at the moment, but we deal with a lot of that indirect trauma. I was sexually abused, um, yeah. neglected and all this. So my staff have to, and myself, we have to do external supervision. It's not a oh, choice. It's mandatory. Yeah, yeah. Is that not in the gas? No, no. No, no. And, and is the, what, what is the mental health in the gas? It has to manifest itself. But, but that's the point. It does. But in ways like you have a lot of guys resort to alcoholism. Mm. A lot of guys just become cold and cynical and just try and close it down. There's been lots of suicides in the gas over the last few years as well. The police generally. I can mean suicide is a huge problem. Yeah. Mm. But like, I mean, it's all, and the thing is about stress and trauma is it accumulates. You know, it's not like you forget about it. And some incident might trigger an incident that happened 10 or 15 years ago. And I know, like, I mean, guys say PTSD, you know, I was attacked with a knife and oh my God, I need money. That That isn't a huge problem. But, you know, throw a couple of attending at suicides, a couple of fatal traffic accidents over the years. And, mm. They all add up and they just eat you bit by bit from the inside. And some yeah. some police officers eventually just can't take it. And as I say, the stress in the organization of always having your paperwork perfect. And if it's not, you know, mm. you're in trouble. Like, I mean, and constantly having to do paperwork. And I suppose it changes you as a human being as well. You become that little bit harder in the interior here. You have to. Like, you, you mean, know? for a lot, that's, and, and like, I mean, so when I'm thinking of, of a police officer in the U.S., you're kind of you're constantly on edge. You're you probably overreact, mm-hmm. and that is a dangerous situation for an armed police officer to be in because you don't actually you're not even thinking. You just, as I say, some a lot of them would be ex-military as well, so they'd be mm-hmm. highly trained. So their training switches back to the military training. They they shoot first. Did you, you mentioned something there about them, um, and it was in the paper that you published uh, last year. It was around them. Um, policing by consent and yeah. not being seen as an occupying army. Yeah. And I think we probably could say in the area we grew up in, Holly Hill and Napanahini, the guards come into the area, they were not seen as like your protectors, they yeah. were seen as like an occupying army is a good way you put it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because they're like, that's the shares, how, how, you know? Yeah. It was like, and if there was trouble in the area, you wouldn't call the guards really, you know? Mm. I like, that's the perception. But I suppose it's only when you get a little bit older, you realise, you know, how, you know, like if you look enough from the outside, then you can see other areas and even including that area is still kind of like that. What, what's it like being a guard going into an area like that where it's a hostile environment? And you know, what's the guard's perspective of that? Like, well, again, when you're young and like, I mean, as I was in uniform 1990 to 93, 94, and then I went into the crime task force. So we were in Cork City and all over the place and we were kind of mainly plain clothes, sometimes uniform, but always unmarked cars. So we'd be going in and, and like, I mean, we'd be chasing cars or we'd be chasing, you know, doing all great fun, mm. exciting stuff. Like not a bother. I could go into no matter what was happening, happy out to do it. But you can't keep doing that all your life. And mm. again, it doesn't help policing because policing by consent is the people in, and you will never get everybody. Now, you, it's foolish to even try to get every 100% of people support the police. That's never going to happen. 
But ultimately, you need enough of the community to recognize that the police are here to help us. Mm. And you can only do that. And the big problem that the police, current police have is that the administration the bureaucracy is driven by efficiencies. Like every business, like, you know, and it was only for private businesses 20, 25 years ago, but now all this concept, this model of efficiency, mm. and everyone has to have a return to work. All that has seeped into the public service. Value for money. Value for money. Do more with less. And now it's in the police as well. So if you have an organization that's driven by your return of work, how much work are you doing? You can't have community policing because community policing by its nature... So hard to quantify. It, well, first of all, it's hard to quantify. You can't quantify it. It is inefficient by its nature. Mm -hmm. Some guard going in on the beat, spending four or five hours a day chatting to kids and kicking a ball and having tea with people, there's, on the return to work, there's nil. But we all know that it's probably much more beneficial than a guard stopping somebody outside in the road for speeding. Mm. Do you know, and it, what's going through my head at the moment is sometimes you get a lot of shit when you go into certain areas, you know, from young kids. A lot of these kids are conditioned by yeah. all the kids. Yeah. Do you, like, do most guards just take it as a little pinch of salt and just get on with it and understand that these kids are... You know, it's not their fault that they're behaving and speaking the way they do because that's just what they're used to listening to. Or do a lot of guards say, you know what, fuck them little shits. And, and like, it probably do, a bit of both. It, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. Yeah. Because if guards were, were a little bit informed around this area and, you know, before they went into guards, right, say, for example, there was a class around, right, lads, listen, today we're going to be talking about young children and how they really don't understand why they're saying some of the mad shit to eat, like fuck off pig or whatever you know they don't understand it they don't yeah. genuinely yeah, well, because they're that, listening to it from the older kids yeah you know but uh, people are like that and i mean you i mean in fairness the guards would teach you that like that yeah. individuals on their own so like you mean the very gangs when they're in a gang they give you abuse when you meet them on their own one by one it's There's no problem yeah. with it. It's yeah. like that. It's always the way. It's it? always the yeah. way, and that that was one of the great advantages of policing in Dublin was that you you prosecuted your own cases. Mm. So it meant if I arrested something, I remember one that I arrested, and uh, big hullabaloo in Fairview Park and battens and the whole lot, and but dragged them off, kept them in custody into the court the next day, and I had the charge sheets read to him and. Uh, his solicitor came over and said, will you do something for him? So I said, bring him over and we'll talk. So I said, you know, oh, look, I'm sorry, Vala. I said, look, give you a chance. Hmm. You know, we'll knock that down. We'll take that charge. We'll, you know, we won't make, you know, you you yeah. could stand up in the box and you could go to town, the fella, or you can just kind of say, look, yeah, it was just hmm. drunken thing. Hmm. And every time I met him afterwards, he was grateful. Like, and that's yeah, yeah. that's how you. That's common sense, Gavin. But, but it is empathy as well. And it's a little bit of compassion at the same time for somebody. Yeah, but you're playing the, their natural state. You're right? playing the long game as well. Like, you are playing the long game, and that's yeah. that's important to know. Yeah. Like, but that's what policing should be about. Is uh, so when you it's a tough job. That's when you talk about the Dublin model there, as yeah. opposed to like being arresting somebody and then. 
Inspector Con Cadigan doing the prosecuting uh, well, in court. Well, you, you see, first of all, it wouldn't happen because they, 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 when I came to Cork, they were very slow to charge somebody. So they were into the summonses. So oh, it yeah. meant that I arrest you, you're released from custody. About six months later, you get a summons. You don't remember who the guard was. You have mm. no idea. <laughs> and then you go into court and you meet an inspector. You don't know who the guard is either. So <laughs> it means nothing to you. You so don't even remember the charge. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so th- that, that ability to interact with the person uh, straight up that arrested you the, fa- the, the night before and say, look, I'm back in the maggot, you know, mm. can you do something for me? And and that's how you build that. Really. Is there not a standard operation procedure across the country? No, no, that's... That everything everything is kind of ad hoc oh really so in Dublin you brought the court next well that, it, yeah like I mean that was back then now they've changed things and they've tried to introduce a, a standard model where they have a, a sergeant um, and again look it's it's kind of it's, it's the guards are always trying to make efficiencies and mm. um, look I, I, I yeah one of the things about um, about being the suspect on the other side of that is, you know, especially in the district court, well, always in the district court for me anyway, um, was that case. Now, like, especially when you're young, there's a public order or a fray or something like that. You get arrested, you can't remember nothing the next morning. You get the summons, you go to court, the inspector is there, the judge, you're standing there. You might have a case or you might not. Even if you did have a case, what happened with you? Yeah. You're standing in the courthouse, the inspector's reading out what happened. What are you going to say? It didn't. Do you know what I mean? You have no like leg to stand on in the district court. You know, I, 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 I and I, in my professional capacity, then support people in that situation. Like, it's very unfair, and the person that's being charged. You know, sometimes the guard will be have integrity and he'll say the truth, but other times they well, might. You see, like you mean, any incident that happens can be. It's how the language you use around it. And as I say, mm. you can talk up an incident or you can talk it down. Yeah, you can say he assaulted me or you can say he pushed me. Mm. You know, and by just those kind of the way and the way you say it, like, you know, like yeah. he, he was, he was drunk out of his head. He was trying to punch me, judge, you know, he assaulted me mm. or, you know, judge, he had a bit of drink taken. And, yeah. and Have was, you came across lads in custody that for their own good and for the sake of their life, that they went to prison, even though, you know, say for example, an addict, no, that's completely destroyed from heroin yeah. or crack cocaine or alcohol and, and just to give them a bit of a break from the yeah. environment that, you know, Sometimes, yeah. you, you actually, you, you understand what I'm saying. You yeah. actually say, prison is probably the best place. The best place for this guy at oh, the yeah, moment he's going to yeah. die. Yeah. You know, I think that that's something that has saved James's life yeah. on a few occasions and yeah. my life, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of my family members' lives as well. Prison at that time saved their lives mm. because if I'll tell you a story and, 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 and it, it was about a family member of mine and I remember at the time he was completely destroyed from heroin, completely. We were waiting for a phone call or a knock at the door. And I, I, we were in despair. We did, actually didn't know what to do, but there was a bench warrant out for him. And I went looking for him on the streets and I caught him and I brought him down to the girls because I knew if he went in and warrant that he was out on, his life yeah. could be spared for another bit of time, you know, mm. but at the time where we come from, that would be classified as in fucking... Something taboo, like... Uh, you know, know, an informer or a rat. Yeah, yeah. But I basically seen no other option for my brother at the time. He, 
you know he was so bad yeah so i i grabbed him and i brought him down <laughs> mm. it done no good because he got out the next morning when he was brought but to court did, you did what you put on that did, night because i knew if i did if i didn't do something like that his you know, know. i'd be spending the rest of my life wandering if i'm regretting that, that you didn't exactly say, yeah. mm. and some and some family members go to that extent to save a mm. family member I'd say you'll probably come across that like mm. through your career like you're knocking on people's doors and they're as heartbroken as anybody else mm. at the carry on of their son or daughter oh, yeah. what's it like to knock at somebody's door a, a, a parent and tell them that their son has been murdered or died of an overdose or, or, or a suicide I to be honest with you I was spared a lot of that. Occasionally, I'd had to go with a traffic accident. Someone was mm. was mm. dead, or like I mean, you'd start off with, you know, I've bad news, like, and then you're kind of you're supposed to break it to them gently, as opposed to just knocking at the door and just saying, you know, ah, your son is dead or whatever. So you kind of start out with being bad traffic accident. He he's been taken to hospital. It doesn't look good, you know, and yeah. that kind of stuff. But um, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, there's nothing worse than going into somebody's house and mm. saying, look, so-and-so is murdered. And, and I, I know, actually, I, I investigated a traffic accident and, uh, I mean, it was a suicide. There's no doubt about it. It was a suicide. Like, But I was happy to write it off as a traffic accident mm. like, because, mm. you know, oh, who the hell wants to live with, know. with knowing that their father or whatever, mm. you know. Um, so to all the questions that come uh, with the suicide. Like, and the guilt. Because yeah. that's that's the huge thing. And friends of mine, guards who did kill themselves, you're kind of going, oh, fuck. Should I have, like, you know, the way you say, I'll phone yeah. that fella now next week or that, and then months go by and, mm. and suddenly you hear he's dead and you're kind of going, mm. after hanging himself for a while, you're kind of going, oh, fuck. Is there know. any more I could have done? What could, like, yeah. you, mean, you knew you should have, you were going yeah. to phone him. And like, you mean, if you had gone through with that and met him for a coffee, you could have been the difference between, because mm. for people who do suicide, it's, it's often... I mean, obviously, they, they think about it a lot and so on, but it's like everything in life. It's it's a last-minute decision when it comes down to it, it you know? And you often wonder, guys, just as they hang at the end of the rope, they're kind of saying, this wasn't a smart idea, you know? But At the know, time, they're in so much that, pain absolutely. that they can't see yeah. any way out of, of, yeah. of what they're going through. Yeah. It seems like the only option. Yeah, uh, but you carry the guilt in afterwards. And yeah. as I say, that would be people I know, never mind if you were unfortunate enough that it was a, mm. you know, a loved one that that, that did it, you know? Mm. Do you know, in the, in the height of the Black Lives movement a couple of years ago, probably at the stage, yeah. there was a video on Twitter and it was um, two separate videos next to each other. But one of them was in the UK, one of them was in America. So there was an, an irate black guy in America mental health issues he yeah. got shot a lot of times right there was the same type of an incident the man had a machete in England yeah. and it was about get with the girls ended up taunting him down restraining him no force yeah. used or nothing yeah. it was like a, you know when you have a weapon and you don't have a weapon when you have a weapon that's your go to is it or is it like, like if you if you remember the situation and you're trying to have a weapon do you automatically you, you disregard the de-escalation techniques you go straight for the weapon Whereas no, if you have the way. It depends on how, how you're trained. I mean, mm. that's, and and again. It goes uh, back to the army training. It does, yeah. And, and it, like, I mean, there's a lot of factors in there. And, and you, it's, it, there's no one incident the same as, uh, as any mm. other because mental health is a huge problem. Like, I mean, and when I say a huge problem for policing, it's probably if you could solve mental health issues, policing would be much better 
easier and better for everyone, like for the whole of society. But when you're dealing with somebody with mental health, you now do not, first of all, you don't know if he's a mental, but you kind of, with some situations that are so extreme, mm. you know there's, yeah. but you don't know how far gone that person is. You don't know how how that psychotic break they're having. And as well as that, the, <laughs> the amazing thing about people with mental health is they're incredibly strong. Mm. they're five or six times a normal they person's are, yeah. strength it is, it's unbelievable mm. so if somebody like that has has a weapon like a knife and you can't talk them down mm. now pointing a gun at somebody like that is only going to provoke them anyway so the best thing to do is try and talk them down and if you can talk them down and they listen to you it's going to work but if it doesn't and they come for you mm. then and you have a gun, I can guarantee you if you don't mm. pull it and use it, that machete's gone down. Is that ha- what happened to the, the black guy I don't in Dublin? Know. I don't honestly know because I do know, know that the they, they, I know. I, and like, I mean, they tried to use this taser. And again, the problem with non-lethal weapons is that they work, we'll say the pepper spray works 80% of the time. The taser works 90, 95% of the time. You can't use pepper spray in an enclosed space. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody else is, is around because they yeah. so if you use a taser and somebody's having a, a psychotic break, it, it's gonna bounce off them. Mm-hmm. So now you're in a situation where the non-lethal is not working, they're still a danger. So how many people do you leave get get killed yeah. before you decide to do and it's a tough call to make mm-hmm. because if you decide to, to pull the trigger on somebody like that, mm-hmm. you know you know this is something you don't want to do. And mm. it really is. It's not like it's an armed robber who's coming out and he's trying to shoot you. It's yeah. it's not that kind of clean I can stand over. Because you shoot somebody, you know that this person wasn't themselves. They were literally having a psychotic break. Mm. But... You have to defend yourself too, right? And other people. As I say, yeah. it's not just yourself. Like, I mean, you know, if, if you didn't shoot and the person broke free and they stabbed a child on the way, know. you know, who'd be yeah. saying... You know, so it's a tough call to make, and as I say, it, it's very easy to judge afterwards. But the, with the information you have at the time, you have to make it, and that's the problem with policing: is that there's always willing to be barristers and tribunals and everyone who has loads of time to make a decision afterwards. But with policing, you have limited information. You have to make a decision. You have to do something. A lot of times that's going to be bad information. You're going to be mistaken. Like, I mean, the amount of calls you get going to place. One call we went to, it was guys poaching rabbits was the call we, we got going. It turned out that it was actually an aggravated burglary and your man had been shot with a shotgun. You know? Mm. Now, that that worked. We could have been in trouble. But if it, the call had come in the other way that it was guys being shot with and we'd gone in and it was, you know, with guns, and assumed, and that's the problem. The calls you get are usually ambiguous. Mm. So somebody phones the guards, they don't give you, uh, they don't have the full information. They give you some kind of what they think is happening. A bit of a hunch, like they have a hunch. Yeah. They think this is. They look. It looks like this person is being kidnapped here or uh, whatever. That call comes through. You go to that call. That's what you're expecting. Nine times out of ten, it's not what's happening at all. Have you ever been in a situation where you're afraid for your life? All the time. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had somebody shoot at you? Uh, well, a couple of times. Go ahead. Yeah. Like in, when you were a policeman? When you were a oh, policeman. I had one or two shotguns pointed at me. All right, yeah. Yeah. The business end. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about the business end. What do you mean by... What do you mean by... Or the, or the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, and I have a question regarding Ireland has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. We've had new communities of people come in, different cultures, different coloured people. How is the integration of those cultures and colours of different black, brown, yellow, all different forms of people being integrated into the guards who are kind of their own organisation for a long, long time? You mean as serving yes. police officers? Um, How is I, that I don't know because I kind of, I'm, like, I mean, I have to say, I wouldn't have had a whole lot of experience of it mm. because I kind of left 2017. So there wasn't a whole lot. The big factor I know that was, ironically, we go back to the Irish language, was that a lot of people, you know, to join the guards, you need the Irish language, like. You know, if if <laughs> for a lot of people, especially if you've if for a lot of Irish people, that's a bit of a bridge too far. Never mind if you're coming from. from How relevant is it to the job, though? Oh no, you don't want me to go there now and <laughs> have a hate gang after oh, really? me. I, look, what can I say? I like. I mean, I know you, in an ideal world, it's great, you know, but practical terms, probably better off using your time and energy learning something that would use. I, I, I mean, the amount of times that I would have been pushed to use the Irish language about once. Mm. And even then it was a case of, yeah, who's Thorgail Gore? We've won here for you. Mm. And, but I mean, to be honest with you, then if you want to learn a language, Polish might be the language to learn. Totally. You know? So, yeah. I mean, do we learn languages? But we're not learning Irish because it's... Or, or we're not being required to use it because it's practical. That's there's a history behind that, mm. and and that's a political and and cultural thing as well. So yeah, you know, the problem is is there's only finite time for training, and you either look at things that are totally functional, and are going to be of tremendous value to the officers going out, or you fill their time with stuff that's nice to have. But mm. you know, what are you sacrificing? Yeah. I do that, you know. You mentioned the history there. Will you give us an overview of how we got to where we are today in terms of Angarda Shikana? Like, where did the Garda come from? Like, the policing as, like, an organisational concept? Like, is it well, a British thing? Or? No, and I mean, policing is, I mean, everyone talks about Robert Peel and the, the London police, the London Met, which he formed in 19, 1829. But, I mean, policing has been around for, in the continent, like, in prior to that the all the french kings would have had police and secret police and they would have used the army and that's where the term paramilitary would have come from so gendarmes so even in france today they have three or four different types of police mm. you'd have your local town police then you'd have a kind of a national police but you also have this kind of paramilitary gendarmes or the guardia civil in spain so like their mm. history is hundreds of years old yeah but in 1829, like the turn, the end of the 18th century, there was a need, partly because of industrialization, which brought a lot of people from rural communities where social control was pretty strong. So if you were living in a small village and everyone knows you, and this is, this is the place you've lived in for 500 years and the farthest anyone ever goes is two miles. Like everyone yeah. knows everyone. There's no need for an... Uh, uh, but they would have things like had watchmen and parish constables and the local gentry would have been a justice of the peace. So yeah. he would have had some responsibility there. But then as things, people start moving into the cities, this anonymity. So no one knew who anyone was. Yeah. And that 
bred in a lot of people of course moved into poverty because things didn't work out the job they were promised that or they couldn't find work or whatever so crime was starting to become a big problem and um so they tried to create and the, the initial failing in 1795 the initial bill failed the commons wouldn't pass it but it actually led to the creation of double metropolitan police and then uh, Robert Peel actually served as a lieutenant governor in Ireland before he went over to back over to England and he created the Irish Constabulary that would become the Irish Constabulary and then become the Royal Irish Constabulary. So in some ways. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. He kind of modeled a bit of that to create the 1829 bill, which was the London Met. And they basically, their function, and, and we have this idea of consent, you know, policing by consent. That was big Robert Peel thing. But the reason that he was pushing that, it wasn't so much that he felt that this was the right way for policing to do, was that he had to overcome the objections that the, I suppose, the aristocracy and the landed class and, and the politicians they were afraid because you just had the revolution in France and a lot of secret police. A lot of people did not want the government having a police force under its control. And Peel's compromise was that it would not be armed. So therefore, it wasn't going to be like a military unit. Mm. It wouldn't have the red uniform of the military. So you wouldn't mistake them. They would have a distinctive blue uniform. And the only armament they would have would be a wooden baton. But their only function when Peel created them was to walk the street and to prevent crime. Basically, the idea, as naive as we think it is now, yeah. was that simply walking around with a tall top hat on in a blue uniform, you know, tall men looking fit, every criminal would say, oh, please, I'm not doing that. But it assumes that all crime is street crime, and it's yeah. not. 
And it also, so it took about, I think it was about 40 years. Now, the Bow Street Runners, which is a different story, um, were around at the time as well. But it took about 40 years before the first detective unit, detectives were created because they realized, the police realized that a lot of crime happened without us knowing it. And now we have to investigate it. That was never Peel's idea. That was never part of the idea. And, and over time, what has happened is that the police have literally just, right, we'll do that, we'll do that. And some jobs like social services, for example, have been offshoot of things that police took on and they realized they couldn't do it. Mm. So there's still law there that say police can go into a house if they think a child is in danger, they can take him into care. But now we would have social, social workers to do that specifically. So that's an offshoot of, of uh, and so like, I mean, a lot of jobs police have taken on, you know, and the problem now is police forces. When you say policeman or woman, you kind of have to say, well, what section are they in? Because if you're in traffic, you're a completely different animal than somebody yeah. who's in yeah. anti-terrorism police or surveillance mm. or whatever. You know, it's it's a different. No, some people can swap around, but a lot of people like to get into an area, and then what you have is, we'll say, even in traffic, it's such a complex legal area. I mean, just imagine tachographs alone, reading tachographs, understanding when and all. Most police, they don't have time to know all that knowledge there's just so much law to know and you have to have it on your literally on your fingertips mm. so a lot of that stuff is left to the specialists yeah and sometimes then what you have is a uniform police officer he, he's okay dealing in the street stuff drunken disorderlies and all the rest of it but he doesn't want to investigate the frauds or the complex cases because he doesn't have any experience or knowledge on it. Mm. Too much paperwork anyway, too. Yeah, maybe people are more suited to different styles as well. Do you know, like, I mean, if you want to do something, generally people, if you're interested in it, you'll find a way to to learn it. And that's, you know, personality has some part to play. But, um, and I, again, like, I mean, some police just burn out they just they just get tired and and that's part of the whole trauma and stress thing is that sometimes it's easier to go into a role like traffic where you simply literally stop speeding cars and all the rest of it there's less hassle there you do your job you return to work you don't have to worry about now you have traffic accidents and so on but you don't have to worry about really do you have to worry about something coming for you with a knife every time you go to arrest him you know yeah can i ask a couple of things about the police that would be perceived as being negative and you can avoid the question if you want Hi. <laughs> I watched the thing and then was I, was I positive or did you think no, that was the positive no but you, yeah. you give a good account of the police officer's perspective on a variety of issues but maybe the police officer's perspective on this issue the um, a few weeks ago on the telly there was different uh, documentaries and series and miscarriages of justice and certain police brutality of innocent you know victims and mm-hmm. you know some despicable stuff but using that as a kind of a case study for a broader ex- ex- as a broader example what's it like being an officer with integrity and passion for work in an organization that has characters like that is it demoralizing for force or how does it affect morale of the team or yeah like i mean you're looking most of those cases and and like you mean ireland was as badly affected as the UK was. Because like, I mean, you have some cases like we'll say Joanne Hayes, the Kerry Babies case. I mean, that yeah. was a thundering disgrace. Unreal. 
Um, one of the saddest ones was the young fellas. The girl went missing on yeah. a country lane. The yeah. young fellas were arrested. They were innocent. When vigilantes took know, one of the young fellas out of the back of the squad car, murdered them in the Dublin I know. mountains. I know. Jesus. Innocent boys. Like. Yeah, I know that. How old were those kids? 17 or 18. Yeah. Um, so, like, I mean, there's been, what do I put it down to? Well, I can, I know for a fact, because what you see is when something horrendous happens, the police are under pressure to get a result. And every officer is under pressure. So when a suspect is nominated, it's this tunnel vision closes down. And that's not necessarily just at the investigator level. That's usually higher up. And that's kind of, he's the suspect. Forget everyone else. He's the suspect. Get, and this was always the way, get a confession. Like Jerry Conlon. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's get a confession because that's great evidence. And far too often, other avenues of getting evidence were ignored. So like, I mean, an awful lot of cases and the... O'Brien report on the Kerry Babies thing said that even at that stage, 80%, and this was before police had any official powers to arrest you, to interrogate you at all. Well, apart from the 1939 Act, but for, for murder and for for cases now, we'll say we have now, we have the 1984 legislation that allows you to be detained up to 24 hours for questioning. Prior to that, officially, you were not allowed to be arrested to be, but yet... 80% of all convictions were obtained on confessions. So how the hell was that happening? And that was happening because people were, in quotes, helping police with their inquiries, which meant they were literally brought into a station. They weren't left out until they made a confession. And how if that was days, that was days. If that was weeks, <laughs> mm. but you wouldn't survive weeks. No. So like, I mean, that was the way it was done. But it's not just the police know it. Solicitors know it. Mm. Judges know it. How far uh, back are we talking about? This this is since police have been around. Mm. I can when mean even stop? even what's his name? There's a great story in uh Charles Dickens about the Bow Street runners, about them mm. beating their head against the the the, the wall you know there's the wrong suspect and they just continue to be, rather than try to find out the facts they just keep beating their head off off that wall because they're but that's confirmation bias that's human nature and police are badly affected by it mm -hmm. but now I won't say but since as if it's all changed like I mean that bias is still present but what has happened now is that when you're arrested and you're brought in for interview it's such a regulated process. You have mm. cameras everywhere. It's all audio recorded. You have to have access to your solicitor and so on. So there is none of that, certainly not at the level that of that abuse going on anymore. Yeah. Now, does that mean things are perfect? Not at all. You know, as I say, confirmation bias and and the fact that people still jump to conclusions and they refuse. And that is like, I mean, I've, I've heard detectives and I remember one girl, she, com she, she made a complaint about rape and I were having the, the meeting the following morning and one detective, a senior guy says, oh, that's a false allegation. I remember thinking to myself, like, I mean, at least let's investigate it first. Let's spend I a know. few hours yeah. just asking a few questions before we mm -hmm. jump to that conclusion, shall we? You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> and you do get that. You mm -hmm. still, you still just want to beat fellas about the head and say, look, I can mean, let's take it one step at a time. Mm. We'll take every complaint as serious until shown otherwise. Yeah. Do you know, does a guard get promoted based on the amount of convictions they get? And no. they, they, they don't. Not at all. How does a guard move up the ranks? 
This is Ireland. How does anyone get success? <laughs> oh, that sounds like something. Well, it's like this. If, if that was the case, if, if your work return, and sometimes, you know, they talk that that's important. But if it was important. What's it, it called? Cronyism is like when you look after your friends. Like lickers. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a way better <laughs> way of putting way it. <laughs> um, if that was the case, if you worked in an office and an awful lot of guards spend their entire careers in offices, they should never get promoted. But you look at the senior ranks and you'll find an awful lot of them spend all their careers in offices. Mm. So you can't do much investigating sitting in an office, I can tell you that for now. So if there's any girls listening, stay in the office if you want to raise their <laughs> I'll tell you a story. I actually, when I was going, when I was going through the whole process of joining the guards, one thing you had to talk to was your local superintendent. So I went to my local superintendent, Killarney, and uh, your grandfather, we chatted for about half an hour. My advice to you now, he says, is when you go in, he says, before you even go in, he says, learn how to type. And I kind of looking at it and say, what? Learn how to type? Yeah, he says, learn how to type, get into an office, he says, and you'll get promoted like I did. I don't think, I came back and talked to my father and we were laughing. I said, Jesus, that's yeah. not, that, I, I, I thought he was joking. Like, yeah. I don't pump on the leg, you know, go get a bucket of steam kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, unfortunately, he, was, the ball, he? he was on the ball. And is that still? Oh, yeah. If you want, if you really want to get promoted, get yourself into an office. Be a valued member in somebody's team in an office, and uh, yeah, you'll get promoted. Where do you stand around um, the guard vetting process, Kevin? Around maybe, say, for instance, myself and James. No, <laughs> James any more than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we lived a different life. Live the life we lived previously, yeah. and. The guard of vetting can follow you. Oh, forever, absolutely! Yeah, no matter how far away from crime you are, or anything else. And but one of the big things for us on this journey is is the behaviours. Because when you stop using alcohol and drugs, you the behaviours are the change. big thing that need to be changed. Yeah. But when you do all that and you get an education, and um, there's so many people now that we're, we're speaking here for get the education. It's the final hurdle is the, the, the vetting process for jobs and stuff and the fear of, of, of being rejected yeah. and, and told no again. Where do you stand around that? Where, but what, like what's you, your opinion? The now? vetting is, is my understanding is you're vetted and, and as opposed to getting a recommendation. You're vetted when you're dealing with children or mm. vulnerable people. Yeah. So the way the vetting should work is like, I mean, who cares what you are like? you know, 25 years ago. Like, I mean, if you were not a danger, if there was no crimes related to being mm. a danger to children, I mean, and for the last 20 years, you have a totally clean record. Why should that stop you now moving into, you know, mm. that's the way I'd look at it. But I, I presume that is the way they do look at it because it seems a very naive kind of belief that you've nothing to offer. Mm unless you have lived a clean life all mm. your life because that's that's not true mm. people change and, and the fact that people change they may have actually more to offer yeah mm. I, I think in some occasions like for instance now if if there's if if it's a sexual assault or, or children or something that's oh, well that, 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 as I say if, if it's something like yeah, that in your relevant, background like, but, that's relevant but like 
shouldn't there be some form of time period for, for people without that and they've gotten into shit when they were young or whatever and, and now they're going forward and uh, like it's 10 years since they committed a crime shouldn't there be some kind of quash just mm. it, like just put aside and maybe we often spoke about myself and James and other people yeah. maybe some board where they say like right this man has done it, like you mean that's a good search. good point like you mean it really could be done on a kind of official basis is that basically you know you have parole boards you have you know and that basically if there should be some kind of mechanism Mm. where somebody who wants to who has qualifications like i mean you know you've spent your time getting qualifications to do a specific role none of your past history indicates that you're a danger to to your potential clients there should be a way that you you know an official mechanism that you basically present and this board gives you the, mm. the clear you know mm. it's just a question that we always yeah. have you ever um interacted with somebody in when you're the police officer uh, kind of criminal relationship, let's say that down the line they've they've moved away from the crime. Have you ever met them? Oh yeah. Mm. Oh. Well, like I mean, that happens all the time. Like I mean, you know, you know, I talk about desistance. And yeah. Like I mean, guys that were prolific criminals in their mid twenties up to their mid twenties, you know, they get married, they move on, they get a job, and like rakes of fellas who are or walking away that I would have met afterwards and no no I'm not in that game anymore not meant to do that neither are you <laughs> yeah you know but yeah. like I mean yeah over my career you would have you know come across fellas that that you know had had left it all behind them and because they knew it was a dead end they knew they could see and this is the thing is that you know if you have these moments of clarity you can act on them and you've somebody to help you hmm. because it's very difficult if you're on your own you say oh yeah you know like i mean i can see this happening but your friends are all still into it and they suck you back into it and they tell you it's not a problem and stop moping around and yeah and then that moment passes and you're you know it might be another two years before you have another moment like that but god hmm. knows what has happened in that two years really? so if you have some kind of somebody you can go to that it, it does that says look yeah let's let's step back where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself? How are you going mm. to get there? You mm. know, what can we do to make that happen? Yeah. For you, you know? I was up in um, I was up in Cork Prison myself on Friday. We're doing uh, an addiction studies course, introduction, yeah. eight weeks test or test or course for um, 13 prisoners. Uh, some doing extremely long sentences, some doing very short and everything in between. Yeah. Um, but there's a bit of that, like there's a bit of like, the, you can see the mature of fellas doing the big sentences thinking like yeah. it's just starting out in the courses now and I'm thinking like did, did, what did I do with my life do you know, know. Yeah. but then there's when you get out then it's the whole family are still yeah. enmeshed in it yeah. the, the, the community how hard it is mm -hmm. for people to try and, and break that's the away. toughest thing like yes. because you're part of a group and then that's that's a fundamental human need is to be part of a group and to be part of a group means be accepted by the group and to be accepted by the group and find meaning in the group, you have to conform to that group. And that's going back yeah. to what we're talking about being a police officer. That's the exact same thing that happens. And, and, and it's the same as how crime happens is that generally there are very few people that get this madness, well, obviously mental health maybe, but, you know, on their own, they get these notions that they'll completely go against our group. If your group is, you know, anti-crime, anti-drugs, then they kind of look at you. Now you can change groups, you can move up. But yeah. if your group is is into being out of your head 
and you leave prison and you have all the best aspirations and you want to do this and you want to do this with your life and you're going to change and you come back and suddenly within two or three weeks you're back in the same mm. socializing network the same the same thought patterns it's tough it's tough it's, it's impossible tough. but i remember like starting out on my own this and when, when we talk about dissistance with people that don't know it's it's, it's a term used to describe recovery from yeah. offending behavior yeah. it's like you're not offending anymore and you won't for the longer term so in in recovery and assistance for me um changing that social group yeah. and then feeling isolated lonely feeling like you're yeah. abandoning people yeah. feeling like uh who do i think i am jollies yeah, yeah. There's, there's guilt associated there with is. there's this kind of feeling that i i think i'm above yeah them and they look up look down you know i'm looking down and then yeah. they're gonna feel that do you, know what, do you know what i did have i had 12 step groups to go to a new social yeah. group like-minded people yeah. and the problem is people desisting from crime come from prison they don't have that that social is true. support that is true and like i mean there's a lot to be said and and it's a very important and it's something i mean our entire criminal justice system is based around the fact that you commit a crime the police are supposed to find out who commits a crime take you and punish well the criminal justice system yeah. punishes you and somehow inside you're supposed to learn that was not a good thing i'm not a good person but that's not the way prison works. You go into prison and a lot of people just feel hard done by mm. because they don't feel, you know, they're deprived of this, they're deprived of that. They get out and it's like the system just says, off you go, try again. Mm. Whereas, as you say, the 12-step program is an essential part of most addictions and getting out of, and it's 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 about changing your thinking it's like cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. it's about changing your thinking to to look at situations differently look at what drives you why am i doing this is it really am i enjoying this mm. is this is this serving me my long-term needs in any way yeah and crime doesn't no. i mean for some people obviously crime pays literally but for the vast majority of people inside in prison they're in there for petty crimes literally petty crimes mm. they get little benefit out of it. no but you made a good point and i think about like when i was in prison over the years there was the therapy and there was linking them with the cock alliance yeah, yeah. and iasio and counselors and all these but I think what, what I was missing when I grew up was that social yeah. group because it was always back into the same area, yeah. the same people and very hard to I think like maybe we need something like, I don't know, a recovery room for people that's coming out of prison. I think that's I mean, a great or, idea. I don't know, assistance rooms or I don't know, assistance or anonymous even, or something. Or, or even people that are truly serious about it. Maybe a separate treatment centre for prisoners coming out where... A halfway houses yeah. work well in other, other jurisdictions, like... Because if they're going back into the natural environment, the environment they were in beforehand, where there was a lot of drug addiction, alcoholism, crime, you said it earlier, they have absolutely no, no chance. Yeah. It can be tough enough com coming out of prison and, and adapting to life being a different person, mm. but going back into the, your, the same environment can be absolutely detrimental and i say that from my own experience yeah, yeah, I, I believe it like it, 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 it must be because i'm sure a lot of people are in prison and you say are going through all those little courses and all yeah. that education and it's just being in it no, no one wants to be in prison it's a, mm. i can imagine a, course, huh? absolutely but then you come out and you're abandoned like you mean the state literally seems to just throw you out the door and mm. that's that's good luck Mm. We've given you as much help as, but that doesn't last. Like, yeah. I mean, you need that support at least on a weekly basis. And now as you grow and get stronger, 
And it would be great if we had systems like where somebody is, is brought, introduced to a trade and, and you know, you had mm. these kind of, instead of step down programs, step up programs. Yeah. So that, I know not every, it won't succeed with everybody. But, you know, something, at least if there was that mechanism in place, you might fail twice, three times, but you might try harder yeah, every time. Definitely. You know? you know, when people talk about drug policy, they nearly always go to Portugal, you know, because Portugal yeah, is yeah. like decriminalizing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in Sweden, they have some very harsh uh, drug sentencing laws. But, you know, what they do, they invest a lot of money in rehabilitation, yeah. assistance, the aftercare. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, like, a, a good policy doesn't have to be, like... Let it rip, like yeah, yeah you know I mean? agree. You could still have people in prison and and stuff like that, but it's the aft. Like if you put somebody in prison and you don't provide services for them when they get out, you're only doing half the job. You're not even doing half the job because, like with drugs, if you don't examine why somebody is doing drugs in the first place and deal with those underlying issues, those underlying issues don't change by themselves. Mm-hmm. So, like I mean, they may stop doing drugs, but they might do alcohol instead. You know. Um, and th- those issues need to be tackled. Do you know in, in your career, you did you, did you do a bit of training with the FBI? Yeah. What was it like? Um, What's the standards like? Is it like oh, a day of the elite? Oh, I have to say, like, I mean, in the, the course I did with, with the FBI was part of a CIA course. So there was a guy from, the, oh my God, they're, they're like, I mean. Different level, like. Intelligence. Oh, oh, like, well, for smart, some, like. oh, yeah, they're yeah. very, very good. They are yeah. just highly professional, and they, they they don't have that same. They look at a problem and they try and come up with solutions, and they're given the the resources to do that. Mm. But the difference is though, and then this this is something, and while I can criticize the guards a lot, the guards are asked to do an awful lot, and. You can't have a police force of 12, 13,000 people and you have them doing public order at matches. You have them policing St. Paddy's Day. You have them doing traffic. You have them up on the north side chasing cars. You have them dealing with domestic violence. You have them dealing with rape cases. Where's the FBI? They don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. They basically just look at the very pinnacle of serious crime. Yeah. So they can therefore a lot of their skills are at a higher level and they're transferable between now i mean there's obviously different specialities but Mm. whereas you know we have i mean we have a situation that in this country if you're promoted and we'll say you're in the computer crime section you're a guard there you get promoted as a sergeant you could be thrown out to do walk on the beat down on sheriff street Mm. you know there you go mm. you can spend another two or three years walking to be sheriff street your computer skill can you imagine how how out of touch you'll be after two years in the computer scene mm. so we expect an awful lot from the guards to be jack of all trades and, and it, it's difficult not to be because we're a small country there's a lot going on um you know that the police are the only resource they are to deal with it mm. But the FBI is just one of, I think there's 18,000 police forces in the US, like, you know? It's unbelievable, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. Like, yeah. I mean, but they That's can create, literally create their own, universities create their own police forces, like. Yeah. So um, so the FBI is is exceptionally professional, like. 
but it has its own problems. And like you mean, their their original founder was not fondly remembered. No, he isn't. No, he is Hoover. Yeah, he mm. was a bit of a head case. Bit of a racist, aren't he? A bit of a racist, <laughs> a bit of a lot of things. So yeah, he was, yeah. But yeah, it's it's a very professional organization. Where does Ireland rank in terms of global police forces? Like in, and maybe PSNI, Garda Síochána, if you compare the two of those. So we'll say if you look at Premier League soccer teams, yeah. we're looking at the Liverpools, okay? Mm-hmm. Would be that the elite. Would, yeah, that would be the PSNI. Really? Yeah. And who plays up the north side on a Saturday and a kickabout? Not really that. Celtic. <laughs> 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 Is it that different? Uh, it's not that different. No, that would be unfair. But definitely there's no comparison. We're not Premier League. Not really? at all. Not at all. There's no comparison between the PSNI. They're an incredibly professional police force. Oh, yeah. No, they they have their problems. They still do. But I have to say, any time I've interacted with them through training, is just is seriously impressed at the way they train and what they train for. Whereas the guards, it, it just, it, it's, we're not at the races. This is why Drew Harris is in the role he's in. Uh, there's lots of reasons you Drew Harris is in the role he's in. Um, I don't think it's necessarily training. I think part of his... The impartiality. His, of- impartiality and he's not one of the network. Yeah. So he's, I think his role is, is partly to, to knock a lot of the cronyism nepotism out of the job possibly bring it on training wise as well because certainly they need to mm. um and i know like i mean t- training temple more has improved a lot because um the lads and my old supervisor uh was involved in new training definitely has moved on a lot but still like i mean it's it's not just the initial training but you need training right through so like i mean the big problem is is even first aid training is 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 very poorly delivered in the guards like you know so that kind of stuff needs speaking of training when i was up in the prison again the other day so he says to the lads um have you noticed any difference in the prison officers over the last couple of years so there's been big recruitment to land the IPS yeah. over the last four or five years. And myself and Sheila Hanley from the Cork Alliance were involved in the training. So we, there's a different group of recruits every month for the last five okay. years. And me and Sheila have went up and given them lecture for the day. It's basically, and by the time they get into the job, they have an understanding of who who the criminals are, the context they've come from, maybe the families they've grew up in, the culture in the area. So by the time they're on the landing, the officer knows they have a more critical eye on who this person is. Maybe this person taken out of that context can be actually a good person, stand-up person. So uh, no, that's a small part. They do 12 weeks in-house yeah. training, right? So we have a small part in it. And the prisoner says that the new batch of prison officers are a lot nicer. They're a lot more open, they're a lot more talkative, they're a lot more um, easier to get on with. Mm. And like, I often wonder, like, would, would the guard go down that route of, you know, expanding the training? I know they did a, a human rights module there recently enough, there is a small bit of input too as well, you well. And that, but um, like, is there a bit of, of that of like, getting the guard to do a bit of a criminology or a bit of a sociology? or a well, bit they, of, But they do. I mean, they do. Uh, they, that, that was part of our training back. I, I presume they still do. I, yeah. I know that we did a sociology module and uh, 
But sociology is a very broad subject. And mm. I mean, what really has changed over the last 15 years an understanding of ACEs, yeah. you know, adverse childhood yeah. events and, and how they can seriously impact childhood development, which yeah. then lead to problems with learning outcomes, behavioral outcomes, and then obviously into bad behavior as well as, as kids, they overreact to stress, yeah. you know, so again, it's back down to stress. So that's a huge development in yeah. terms of understanding, and that's neuroscience. Is that filtering down through training? Not yet, but that's, that's time. It, it, all these things do take time because, you know, um, psychology has made huge advances over the last 20 years. Psychology created a lot of problems for 50 years before that, like, mm. you know? So sometimes you don't want to jump on the newest thing immediately. You have to kind of leave it filter. But I think that's a great idea. And, and I, I'm sure I do, as I say, the guards do do sociology. And I think yeah. I've no doubt that over time, this concept of ACEs and understanding mm. will be introduced into it. But that's in the context, again, of return to work. Mm. So like in his grand knowing that, they, but you still have to get so many, uh, well, not that rest, but we'll say speeding tickets. You still have, even though the, no one will say you have a quota, you will be asked at the end of the month, where's your... So we do have quotas for guards. Well, officially we don't, mm. but there's your sergeant will say, well, what the hell have you been doing? And your superintendent will be calling you up and saying, you haven't done a whole lot this mm. month. There's yeah. a brilliant documentary on Netflix about quotas in New York City. Yeah. Did you see it at all? No, I don't watch television. But, but basically... Uh, you're better off because it just would have fucking freak you out but yeah. arresting my quarters means that by the end of the month you have to have a certain amount of people arrested yeah. now if crime is particularly low on that given month doesn't matter so what was happening then is they were going to arrest, arresting minorities because they're the least likely to kind of go about the formal route of yeah. you know complaining yeah. so then you have black and Hispanic people being arrested and prosecuted for crimes they didn't commit or for petty, petty stuff crimes, they yeah. did you know yeah so if you put a quote on something, you're yeah. asking for trouble, aren't you? But this, this, this is the 100%. whole percent. Yeah. You know that's which what they're trying to do is, and if you asked those in management, they will talk about efficiencies and value for money. So it's dressed up as a great idea. Mm. But what happens is all these cunning plans when they go operational is that along the line is that some poor sap is arrested for something that if that didn't exist, he might just, the officer might just stop and talk to him. Reminds me of a story, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because the details might be vague, but around the Industrial Revolution, there was a, or a, it might be around the plague time, but there was a big rat infestation mm -hmm. in the city and this local city councillor was like, whoever can get the rats and bring them into us, you'll get paid for every rat. And this is that breeding rats <laughs> and bringing them in, you know, because we get But the, the, that, every time a bounty is offered, mm. like, you I mean, and, and even even the story is, is prior to the creation of police, they created, they gave bounties to these group they call thief takers in, in England. And we know professional police, so but we have a big problem with highwaymen. So we want yeah. you to catch. So what these thief takers would do is they'd go around and they recruit, you know, young fellas and fellas, naive fellas. They'd get them into a gang and they'd, you know, and, they'd, and then they'd start planning hatching this, this highway robbery. Mm. So the young fellas would be all in it for it. 
And then, of course, they'd go out to do a highway robbery. The thief takers would now literally turn on them, bring them in and say, yeah, we found these fellas, like. Yeah. They were literally recruiting them mm. to find them, to hang them, mm. you know? <laughs> and they get the bounty. So it's always the same. It's the same. Everything, like, I mm. mean, every time someone has done that yeah. they've they've found a way and that's the problem with humans is that mm. we're very good and guards and policemen mm. are just Happened as good with um with uh guantanamo bay as well there was a lot of people in guantanamo bay that were just handed over to the americans yeah, by because they were offering big bounties for big for, 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 for yeah and mm. the american didn't know who they were getting they just handed over i mean they, they literally had warehouses full of money in places like afghanistan like i mean warehouses with dollars and they were just literally handing mm. them out like What's life like for Kevin Sweeney today? What are you doing with yourself? <laughs> you're, you're, you're not put out the pasture. You're no, doing... I'm in UCC now, yeah. so yeah, I'm lecturing criminology and doing a bit there, trying to... Get you have a PhD. Yeah. yeah. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Well done. But I'm still, as I was uh, just saying, I spent the last 35 years trying to figure out crime. Why does mm. it happen? I still don't know the answer. <laughs> you may never know. No, might never oh. know. And that's sad. Like you think that, you know, but what I do know is every theory I've come across has flaws and weaknesses in it and doesn't account for everything. So it's, it's, um, but it, I'm, I, I do think that we need to understand, um, why people behave in groups, the role peer groups have on, on, on individuals and their thinking. And even the role of an upbringing. Yeah, well, this, this, the, and, the but role models in the, the, the role models and, and it's, it's a dangerous thing because when you start talking about that and when, then you hear people talking about, you know, people shouldn't be allowed have children unless they do a course, then you're kind of talking about licensing parenting mm. and it's a very dangerous, but oh, at the yeah. same time, it's not a conversation we're having. And that the problem in our modern world is not a, it's not possible to have honest conversations anymore because there's so much polarization and people are and and this is what I, I the one thing I've noticed since doing my PhD is that I I know I feel I know less and less you know it's not I I actually know less about stuff mm. um, and what really frustrates me is is you get a synopsis of somebody. You can we'll say Karl Marx, socialism. Mm. And somebody will tell you what Karl Marx was all about. But when you actually read them, you realize that that's only a tiny fraction. Yeah. The nuance is lost. And people are taking ideas and they're basically, it, it's like getting something in Brown Thomas and, and getting the Aldi version of it, you know? Mm -hmm. It bears no comparison to the original theories. I think especially yeah. in the contemporary culture where everything is bite-sized, bite short, yeah. memes, one-liners. Yeah. Attention spans. People don't want to, to immerse themselves into complicated arguments. And that's, that's why politicians are so successful is that no one wants a politician who stands up and says, lads, this is a complicated problem. Yeah. We might have to do this. We might, we may not. So no one wants that. They want politicians to say, this problem is simple. Here's the solution. Mm. And we vote for that because we think that's, that's mm. it's an easy, it, it makes us feel better that there's an easy answer. All our problems are complex. Yeah, like the Karl Marx one might be, um, uh, religion being the opium of the masses but in the wider context of that quote it actually speaks very favourably towards religion you know but like that's, you mean, that's used the, all the time it, it is and, and like you mean religion is taking has has had a huge um, you know rebirth I've used the term in the US 
but it's almost becoming a cult like in it's almost in some ways becoming fundamentalist christian in parts of the us mm. and and that is amazing for a country that has always separated state and religion but religion is only a symptom of the human condition religion yeah. answers a lot of problems people have you know where do we go to where are we coming from you know how do we cooperate together gives us meaning it gives meaning and that's again goes back to the and and when you're in a group of strangers you can't trust them but if you share a religion that y'all then you can trust them because the very fact that that's religion has solved a lot of problems in the human condition mm. um but it, it it as you say it it is much more complicated yeah. That, and, and we don't have simple answers. And I was talking to Lauren there before we came into the studio, just around criminology. And he was like, what is criminology? Like, is it psychology? And that is part of it. But like anybody can be a criminologist. You can look at, like if you're a lawyer, you look at it from the legal perspective. If you're a psychologist, you might look at it from the, do you know that? Yeah. If you're a sociologist, look at the structures. Yeah. But it's just so broad and so varied. So that's my plug for UCC criminology. Yeah. If anybody was interested go on just try it out mm. year for the masters three year for the bachelors i yeah. loved it yeah fair play yeah, yeah. And I, I have to say because i did my masters in 2011 and it was just of course the fact that it was so diverse yeah and you basically could take whatever approach you know you could focus as, as you say either on the legal or the psychological or sociological and and i did and i i went through the legal first because that was most familiar then i read everything i could in psychology and then i found myself back in sociology and i said damn you know, I didn't want Still to be in sociology. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of realized sociology is where it's at. That's because, my favorite, yeah. Yeah, because if you don't understand why people, you know, want to be in groups and what the power that has over people and how they, they feel about being in groups, you never understand crime. Yeah. Thanks for taking Not at Thank all, you, guys. Thank you so You're much. welcome. Pleasure talking, John. Yeah, it was a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Mm. See everybody next week. Slan lad. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.